Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the arts and health podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Our guest in this podcast is the actor Mitchell Mullen. Mitchell is known for Big Nothing, About Time, Red 2 and the series Deep State. He's also appeared in numerous theatre shows, both here and in the United States. This interview was recorded during the period of the lockdown. Oh my God, you look pretty good, Nears, for being a, in the lockdown, you know. Mitch, where are you at the moment? I am in a little, um, well, it's a little town called Fairhaven, Massachusetts. That's where I am uh-huh. My sister bought this house a couple of years ago to uh, just kind of, uh, she lives in Florida and uh, she, just to be near my mom, you know? And uh, my mom still lives at her house, you know? She lives in the house that we grew up in, all of us. There were seven of us growing up. And uh, yeah, so uh, I have a lot of brothers and sisters in this area, but they, um, anyway, so I'm staying at this house alone. I'm doing, I came from London two weeks ago did my, I'm doing my quarantine, which finished like I think a few days ago. Mitchell Mullen, <laughs> welcome to Right Side of the Brain. Hey, Nears, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. Uh, here I am in America, in crazy America. Yeah. Uh, tumult- yeah. Politically tumultuous America. It um, certainly is that. Yes. And uh, just sort of, you know, seeing the American news every morning and having all my feels about everything in real time, all the time. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So Mitch, you, you happened to say that you were one, were one of seven yes. uh, kids. So, so tell, us, tell us about that. Tell us about your childhood, your, your parents, etc. My parents are, they grew up together in uh, a town called, you know, in America, we say Norwich, Connecticut. But of course, we all know it's pronounced Norwich, don't we? Uh, but that, but you would say Norwich in America, and uh, they grew up together in Norwich, America, and they went to high school together. And my mother's uh, parents are from Ireland. You know, they that family's all Irish immigrants, as is my father's uh, family's. All his parents were Irish immigrants. So uh, we like kind of, they kind of grew up in a little Irish ghetto in Norwich, Connecticut, together. And uh, yeah, so anyway, they got married, and the, uh, my my father went away to to the war. And uh, they got married when uh, he got back. Uh, my father was spent most of the war in London. As a matter of fact, he was a munitions expert. He was a captain in the American Army, Purple Heart recipient. And uh, so my my mom became my mom on the um, my mother was a member of the uh, Nurse Army Corps during World War II, which was this uh, this organization that trained nurses to go. Um, abroad and so after the you know during the war and so just as she graduated in may of 1945 the war was over so she kind of got a free education from the government as a as a nurse you know and of course they had no money and uh, so that was very lucky for them anyway they got married uh my father became a went to palmer chiropractic school in davenport iowa he on the gi bill became a chiropractor in those days it was kind of like becoming like i don't know it was very, you know, juju. It's very, mm. uh, you know, and nobody knew what the hell a chiropractor was in those days. Like a, like a, like a modern day Pilates teacher. Yes, I mean nobody knew what that was. Everybody knows what it is now. 
And he came back to the East Coast and he began like a small practice. They moved to Massachusetts at that point because they had honeymooned in Massachusetts and fell in love with the area. Long story short, moved to a small city in Massachusetts called New Bedford, Massachusetts, started his chiropractic practice there and became uh, a local politician, then eventually became, uh, uh, ran for a, a state senate seat and became a, a, a state senator. And he became, he was sort of a kind of, he was called Doc Mullen, and he was sort of a legendary figure in 1950s Massachusetts politics. He was, he was a, you know, he was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee at that time, and he, he was sort of a, a big deal in uh, Ma Massachusetts politics in the 1950s. He died in 1959 on his 37th birthday, but before you, that, he, he, uh, he accomplished quite a lot. So that was your father who died? That was my dad, yeah. Right, right. Well, he died in 1959. So he left my, uh, my mother a, a very young, beautiful widow. And, uh, and uh, she never remarried, but she, you know, she, um, she, my mother actually continued her own education, became like a, she, in nursing, and she got her, ended up getting her PhD in nursing and worked, uh, went back to work when we were all in school as a nurse educator. So Mitch, so was your mom then uh, basically a, a single mother looking after seven kids. She was, and she put us all through uh, university, all with her own money. <laughs> uh, we had very little loans and all that. My mother paid for it all through her nursing uh, salary. Yeah, she, you know, she's just one of those, um, I mean, they don't really make people like this anymore. Mm. Because my mother was a, and we were all, we were a tough crowd. We were a tough crowd in the 60s, you can imagine, in 1960s America. We were quite wild, <clears throat> and uh, she was a she's pretty tough cookie. She's still around, still around. She's next door right now. She just made me breakfast just a moment ago. <laughs> so, so you're an, an Irish family from Massachusetts. I mean, yes. who, who's ever heard of them before? Tell us uh, about the Kennedy family and your family's relationship with uh, arguably the most famous political family in America. Yes. Well, um, John Kennedy at the time was the uh, U.S. Senator to Massachusetts. Uh, my father was the state senator from Massachusetts and in their dealings together uh, through, you know, in Massachusetts politics just became quite friendly and uh, on, a, on a personal uh, level, even more than a, a political level, even though I do think there was a lot of uh, political friendliness there as well. Um, and so uh, they just, they became uh, kind of buddies. And uh, he spent a lot of time right here next door at that house uh, with his wife, his young wife, Jacqueline. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I have um, me and my younger brother, Kevin, he's a little younger than me. He's 11 months younger than me. We both have, uh, my mom just showed this to me a few days ago. There's a Western Union Telegraph from, uh, from them congratulating uh, Heard them, my mother and father, on on my birth, and my brother, my younger brother is Kevin's birth as well. So from like fifty five, fifty six, fifty seven, they were quite close. And then of course he moved on to kind of a national uh, politics, and uh, you know there was, you know, I mean I've heard in my family that uh, my father was poised to accompany him on on his journey, but my father died quite young. My father died before, as Jack was just getting into a into his, his uh, presidential, uh, his first presidential primary as he's prepping for. My father was meant to go in and join that campaign, but um, you know, he, he died quite young. So 
but that's that's amazing though, Mitch. That that your mom has got a telegram from the man who would later become President John F. Kennedy, congratulating her on the birth of you. Imagine that. And the yeah, and and the birth of Kevin, your brother. Yes, I just saw. I just saw, and I've seen them many times. My sure has them. She has them sort of kept away, and she has them under paper and all that sort of thing. So she's kept them. Yeah, I just saw it a few days ago. She she kind of shows it to me every time I visit to be honest so tell us about the young the young mitchell mullen then so there you are in that very interesting environment you've got your your siblings around you your mom is working very hard to make sure that you know you're raised well where did you always want to be an actor well the only i can the only way i can answer this is i you know i grew up in kind of this golden age of american television where all these you know, all these kinds of uh, iconic television shows were happening in the early 60s, uh, like Dick Van, the Dick Van Dyke show and the Lucy show. And all I can remember is my first memories are I would see the child actors in these television shows. And I would just, I was very jealous of them. There was a TV show called uh, Hazel that was on uh, when I was a kid, when I, I think I was about six or seven or eight, something like that. And there was a a young actor named, I think his name, I might be getting this wrong, but I think his name was Bobby Burdock or Billy Burdock. And he was about my age. He was like a little toe-headed kid, which is what I used to look like. And I used to be like, I hated that kid. I knew that I could do what he was doing. I was like, why is he there and why am I not there? And I used to stand in the mirror and I used to like kind of mouth the words I heard him just say. I would look in the mirror and just say them. And I would think that I could do it. I just had this tremendous confidence that I could do what he was doing and I couldn't figure out why he had that job and I didn't. I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> that's, that, that's my first memory. So did I want to be an actor? I, I don't know if that's an actor, but I just kind of wanted to be uh, on top. I had the job he had. I couldn't believe he was getting to talk to uh, like Hazel and Dick Van Dyke. I, how did those kids get to do that? I was just, you know, really annoyed by that shit. So what did you then do, Mitch? Did you, did you go and, did you go to drama school? Well, I did not. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit that I was kicked out of a very prestigious drama school. Or, or just to interrupt you there, all the best people are kicked out of drama school. <laughs> yeah, I know that now. Yeah. I know that's quite a feather in my cap. Now, at the time, I didn't experience it as a feather in my cap, but I certainly do now. I'm very proud of it. Uh, but, you know, I sort of had a circuitous route to acting because also my, uh, it really, I'm not from a kind of family that encouraged any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of a place in the arts, you know. I mean, my family really, there's no one in my family who's in the arts, so, except I do have an aunt who was in the arts, but she was sort of an outcast. She was, a, she lived in New York City. She was a lesbian. Uh, you know, people just thought of her as being very strange, but, and she didn't communicate much with the family. But anyway, I, I I trained as, um, well, I, I went to university and I got uh, a Boston University and I ended up going there. Uh, and I got a degree in Spanish language and literature. Don't, I have no idea why. I just had some attraction to the Spanish language. And so I used to, I was a good student, always a good student. And, um, and then when I, I got a job as a psychiatric attendant in a, in a rather large uh, psychiatric hospital uh, outside of Boston called McLean Hospital and when I was 21 years old and they I, I ended up like doing very well there and uh, I 
I worked and I eventually became a, a psychiatric social worker and that's and through through my association with that place and I was there until I worked there for about 10 years and I became a psychiatric social worker and and so that was actually my first job so I before I left permanently I I was in my late 20s I'm not saying I was like 26 years old and I um, just had this crazy itch to be an actor it was just in me and so whilst I was working professionally as in the psychiatric hospital, I just went out to um, audition for these, um, these plays that I saw in this local uh, newspaper. And uh, eventually I just ended up getting cast in some shows in Boston. So, so Mitch, you never used your Spanish then no. that you'd studied? At no, university? I never did. Uh, I, did I, I also spent a year in Spain, uh, you know, during uni. You know, I was in Madrid, yeah. and I went to La Universidad Complutense de Madrid. That's where I studied for a year. And uh, I don't know. I always thought it was going to be like a, I just thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be like a translator at the United Nations. That's always what I saw myself doing. That's. I never really thought that being an actor was something that you could do. I just didn't think it was available mm. to me. Now this sounds like some crazy immigrant story, but I guess in some ways. I am from that old school, but that was not anything that I thought I could really do for a living. I felt under pressure to be a professional and, you know, do all those kinds of things and make my family feel good. So there you are as a psychiatric social worker. You've been doing it for a few yeah. years and there's this itch, as you describe it, yeah. to, to, to be an actor. Yeah. And so you're auditioning for, for various uh, places uh, while you are a professional right. psychiatric social worker. So what happened so next? So I got cast in this show called As Is, which is uh, was one of the first plays about AIDS. And I, I got cast in the Boston production of it. And so I, it just was a, such a positive experience for me. And I got such great feedback about, you know, what I was doing in it, uh, that I just decided at that point in my life that I was going to quit that job. <laughs> So I decided I wanted to be an actor and I didn't really give a shit. Like, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't really know how I was going to do it. I had no plan for it. So I ended up quitting that job, the full-time job. But it, as it turned out, you know, this, this institution I worked at, McLean Hospital, you can Google it. It's a very famous uh, private psychiatric hospital in America. I was very well liked there. So uh, they allowed me to come back for all sorts of ad hoc professional activities all the time. So that, so I would, I was still associated with them obliquely, you know? Uh, so I would be able to, I eventually got cast in a show called Sheer Madness in Boston, which was a, a strange, a, a comedy, they call it a comedy who had done it, but it was a professional acting job at the Charles Playhouse in Boston. And I, that was kind of the job. I had an acting job, like a real acting. I was like an actor. I was like, I became an actor. Uh, through that job and uh, I also worked at a uh, a Shakespeare company and uh, up in Maine called the theater at Monmouth I used to do that in the summertime so I, I you know I that's how I developed my identity as an actor I would say in my late 20s through my early 30s so so why then having uh, you, you, you're doing these acting jobs you're working away why then did you go to drama school well all right, yeah. So just before I quit my job full-time at McLean Hospital, I thought that I needed to go for some professional training because I wanted, I just had decided that I wanted to be an actor 
and I was tired of working in psych hospitals, even though I think they're brilliant now. I wish I could go back. So I applied to this acting school, which is, uh, which is, it was an act, a conservatory program attached to the American Regional Theater called Trinity Rep. It was in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a rather prestigious uh, rep company in America. So I applied to the, the training institution there. I got in. Uh, I began to, it was part of a, it was a two-year program there. And I, it was, at that point, it was just certificate. There was no degree associated with it. Now it's associated with Brown University and it's an MFA. Anyway, I was in that program for about, oh, I was about six months, maybe less. I, I'm, I'm, it's a little fuzzy for me. This is about 1984. And uh, <laughs> uh, the director of the program just approached me, tapped me on the shoulder one day when I was uh, in class and said, can I talk to you? He says, it's really not working out for you here. And I said, why? What are we talking about? Like, uh, you know. And it's a little fuzzy for me, Nears, because I also, there was some like, there's some alcohol and drugs involved at this point in my life. Uh, but uh, they asked me to not come back. They asked me to not come back the next day. Right. Uh, yeah, they said they actually were telling me I was, I was done. And I'm not exactly sure what I did. I don't think I did anything in particular, but I think they just thought I was not, I was not connecting with anybody, any of the team. So they asked me to leave. So uh, I left that institution. I just left. And I was quite humiliated by the whole experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, that was Trinity Rep. Trinity Rep yeah. Free Conservatory. The, the, the thing is, Mitch, look, this, roughly the same thing happened to me. When I went to drama school, I was kicked out after a year. After a year? Yeah. So, I went to, at that time, it was a non-accredited drama school called Signet's theater in um in exeter yeah and uh, i think the patron there was peter brook and uh yeah i i got the tap on the shoulder too yeah saying it's, it's not it's not working out for me but like you it's 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 rather a hazy memory <laughs> so uh it was a, we're sort of kindred spirits there it's a bit of a hazy memory i'm sure i had a lot to do with it i, I i'm presenting myself as some sort of a tender you know child and all this but I, I'm sure that I, you know, I probably made some great contributions toward that myself. <laughs> when I look back on it now, I probably did, you know. I was very hurt by it at the time, but but then uh, almost immediately, and I knew a few actors that um that I'd met there, some big actors. Well, they're no, well, Richard Jenkins was a big actor there now. Then at the time, he was a rep actor there, just a stage actor. Now he's like a big Hollywood star. But I, I knew him, and uh, he anyway. I ended up getting a job in a play. You know, and still doing the ad hoc work at the psych hospital. So, like, it, it cushioned the blow somewhat. And uh, I still, I felt like I was going to make it. I mean, I didn't know what, I, I mean, the, the, you know, all these ideas about making it and being a, I never, ever had that in my whole life. Mm. I just always mm. wanted to get a job uh, and be in a play. That's all I mm. ever wanted to do, was to just be in a play. And to just stand around and do a play with people. That's, I never thought about being on television really i always just thought it was no no i just never really my thought i never my thoughts never went that far mitch in everything that you've you've talked about so far um it it's reflects um your life in the the east coast of the united states yeah. and for those uh podcast listeners who maybe uh, you know don't really know much about the united states apart from what we see on our tv screens could you uh, give us your. I always imagine, and, and 
please tell me if I'm wrong, that in many ways, Boston, Massachusetts is literally a different country to Jackson, Mississippi. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think you're dead right about that. It is. And I, you know, and, and especially after having lived in Britain all these years, you know, I see that all the more clearly now. I'm not sure I did before I, I lived somewhere else. But I, I, and even being here right now, I, mean, I really feel like I'm in a little uh, sort of, a, it is like, it's like its own country, really. It's like its own country. And, and, and America can probably be divided up into about seven or eight pieces that are their own countries, culturally speaking. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I would say, uh, you know, the, the bit of the country I'm from, what's called the northeast of the uh, northeast of, of the USA, is like kind of its own cultural uh, entity and kind of its own country. Uh, it's not at all like, uh, like if you follow the East Coast and you go down to Florida and Georgia and Florida, that's a whole other way of growing up and a whole different orientation to life. Mm. Uh, I mean, I did grow up quite religious, believe it or not. I did grow up quite Catholic, you know, and I, I do consider that religious, even though Christians don't think that I'm, I was religious because I was Catholic. They don't count that. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm no longer a Catholic. I mean, I can best be described, I suppose, as an atheist and have been for many, many years. Mm. But, you know, this part of the Northeast is... There's a lot of a lot of Catholics in that area in, in this part of the country. I don't know if that what how that affects the culture so much, but the the, the culture in in the Northeast is really uh, I mean it's marked by a lot of uh, institutions of higher education, you know. So I, I just think there's you know when I grew up, certainly everybody was all about you have to go to uni and you've got we we call it college. You have to go to college and you. You know, you have to get, when I grew up, you have to get a degree and you have to get advanced degrees. And, you know, especially with immigrant parents, you had to, hmm. you know, this is something that you just had to do. Are you, are, are you sure you're not, not Indian there? Are you, it sounds like, <laughs> right. sounds exactly. like my parents. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. I think it's the immigrant experience. You know, I think they're all, yes. all the same, aren't they? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was more, much more important to, for me to be a lawyer or a doctor. And of course, I, I, I didn't do any of that stuff in my family. So I was the first one to really cross the line and disappoint everybody majorly because everybody thought I was going to be president. You know, everybody's like, yeah, yeah. I was always very smart in school and very, you know, talented in anything I did. Mitch, I, I read something once, uh, and I thought it was a very interesting line. I, I can't remember where I read this, but it was something like the Irish-American community historically have garnered a lot of political power, but not actually much economic power, whereas the Japanese-American community have garnered hardly any political power but huge economic power is that a fair comment i suppose it is i suppose it is i i know that like uh somehow i think it's because somehow and i it might have to do with the the generations too because i i, I mean i never had maybe because of the, the way i grew up at the time i grew up because i certainly never felt like i uh that that making money was going to be the path toward my happiness. I've never ever felt that. Now I grew up in the '60s, so I don't know. But um, it's a very interesting observation you've made about uh, you know Japanese immigrants and uh, 
Yeah, I, I suppose that's a fair, I don't know, I can't say I know much about that, Nierz, in a, any kind of, um, anything but anything except just anecdotal remarks about it, but um, uh, yeah, I, I think I really kind of, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me, The that observation you just shared with me, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Mitch, it would be really useful for, for, for people, especially uh, across this side of the pond, um, who maybe don't know how theatre in America works. Uh, uh, we know, for example, that here, if you take the West End out of the equation, most theatre here is is publicly funded, uh, you know, through through taxes, etc. Is it the same setup in the United States? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, the arts are not, in general, the arts. There is a, na a national, uh, an organization for the, called the National Endowment for the Arts that doesn't that does uh, endow some bits of art throughout the country, but it's a very small budget. And uh, it's, as you know, it's a very large country. So, and no, it, it doesn't work like that. I mean, and, I mean, the only thing I can really say about that is, I mean, after having lived in Britain all the years I have, I've always been so fascinated with the National Theatre in, in Britain. And I always think, what an extraordinary institution. I mean, like, I love to, uh, you know, to patronize that institution because because I just think it's so important and such an extraordinary national treasure and resource, you know. Anyway, in America, we don't have that. There is no short answers. There's no, uh, you know, there's no political will in America to affect that. Um, you know, they're just, you know, our politics are, are dominated by, uh, by right now, especially a party that has just, you know, mostly uh, corporate interests at, at its own heart. And then, and, uh, there's just no political will in America to to fund arts, and so we grow, we've all come up with that sort of knowledge. And so any time that we create, I mean, I've created, I I produced a few plays when I was younger of my own. I created my own production company and did it. And I I like got out my charge card and I charged it on my. You know, that's how I did it. It's extraordinary to me to think that you can apply to an arts council and an arts council. You know, might give you some, some money to be able to do stuff. And when I got to Britain, I was like, oh my God, can you imagine if, I, if that had been available to me when I was you know, younger, creating a lot of theater and stuff, you know? So, so if, if, if a, uh, a person goes to the theater, let's say in Boston or where, where, where you are now, they, 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 they go to the theater, they, they pay their money. How, how is that theater run? Is it purely by private funding? Well, there are different kind of levels at which theater is made, you know. For instance, uh, it is possible to create like what I guess you would call something like, that'd be comparable to like an off West End production, say, say the chocolate, you know, the chocolate factory, sort of what goes on at the chocolate factory, let's say. It's possible for uh, companies to get formed, production companies to get formed in great theater at that, on that level uh, via some city funding or some state funding at time, but it's mostly public. One needs, I mean, it's mostly private. One needs to get producers involved and money, but there are some small bits of money available through city resources, through state resources, not federal resources though. So often in the city of Boston, for instance, there is sort of a great mayor, his name is Marty Walsh at the moment. They've always, the, the history of Boston is that they do have mayors that sort of secretly support arts, you know. There's a history of uh, the city, uh, uh, you know, being able to get up some money to help some local small theater companies. Certainly that that was that way when I came up in Boston, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know. 
and that's still going on. I think there's some bigger companies now that have been formed, like Speakeasy and stuff. And and, and there, and I think the city does spend a, and give them a good amount of money to do some stuff. I don't know the particulars of it, but in general, there is no political will to fund arts in America. Uh, would you would you say that in American theater there is diversity of opinion? I would say there's diversity of opinion. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, uh, it depends on what context you mean. I mean, like if I'm working on a, say I'm in the middle of a production, right? I'm working on a show in America, unlike Britain. I mean, it's a very discursive environment, artistic environment, you know, and, you know, Americans are just much freer just saying, hey, you know, this, I don't like, you know, that's stupid. Let me, you know, if you do that in Britain, I learned, you know, I've learned that myself. I'm so British now, by the way, I behave in a rehearsal room. Uh, you know, like it's just that shit doesn't apply. I mean, that kind of level of discourse really doesn't apply in British theater. It's, you know, but anyway, but on that level, yeah, but um, a diversity of opinion, I'm not so sure at the level of, say Broadway produced theater, I'm not so sure there's a lot of diversity of opinion. I mean, I think, I think, I think what's running the show is, is, is money at the end of the day. And, and uh, I think like most Broadway shows now, most of them are musicals now. I mean, not that I, I love a musical, don't get me wrong. I love a musical, not putting down music theater at all. But I mean, it's like, it's like a, it's popular entertainment, isn't it? And uh, so, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see that as, as a, I don't see that as a result, you know, a, that kind of entertainment, the result of a bunch of diversity of opinion. I think uh, that's pretty safe entertainment, you know? Yeah, the, the, the reason I asked that, Mitch, is because other artists that I've interviewed for the podcast, when, whenever I've said to them, can you name me one play that celebrates the free oh, market? Yeah. They can't. They, they sort of they they look at they or you know we're looking at each other blankly and that's what I mean in in the sense of uh, I, I would have thought that we should have a wide diversity of different opinions some plays criticizing the free market some plays yeah. celebrating it some some plays supporting the left some plays supporting the right in and in in America some plays supporting democratic views some plays report uh, supporting Republican views. Yes. That's what I sort of mean. Uh, and and uh, my, my sort of question was, it seems that in the UK, there's very much a lack of that. Yes. And I, I just wanted to know whether the same was happening in America. I don't know if it works in the exact same way, because I think in it, what you're describing really, uh, well, I mean, I think, especially when you're working in an environment where, where private funds are required, to make anything go. I just think that that context alone sort of shuts down diversity. Um, and so, although I think it's somewhat different in the, in the US than it is in the UK, I think, I think there's always some kind of, uh, um, maybe some maverick voices at work in America, maybe that's true. But I see less and less of that happening in America right now as well. I think it's all pretty much, um, you know, it, it comes down to the almighty, you know, dollar, doesn't it? I mean, if a producer doesn't feel like something is going to be uh, financially viable, I mean, nobody wants to, nobody's going to want to do it. Uh, so who's, who's going to be the person who steps out front and says, I have a whole shed load of money and I don't care what you think politically, but I want you to say what you want to say. Like, who does that? I mean, I don't think it, people do that in America anymore. I, I don't see that happening in America myself. I, I don't see it in the UK either, you know? So I mm. just kind of think it may be more of a global trend than, willing, than we're willing to admit. I'm not so sure that, I'm, I don't think America right now is doing that at all. 
So Mitch, tell us about the journey. So there you are, you've, you've, you've left drama school in, in, in rather controversial circumstances. Yeah, right. you're, you're, I'm presuming then that you, you started working as an actor. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And you were working away. But one thing that's always interested me is an American actor who then decides, do you know what, I'm going to leave this country and go to the United Kingdom, because usually it's the other way around. Now that is sort of a crazy thing and it makes no sense at all, Mears. I'm happy to share the story with you. It's a story about instinct really. And just, it's a story about one's inner drive uh, that really makes no uh, sense at all. I, I had been in, new, in Boston and New York back and forth for many years. I had worked, uh, I'd done okay in regional theater, you know, jobbing, a jobbing actor. I hadn't really been able to make a lot of headway in television and film. I really wasn't even able to really get a great agent in, in New York, you know. Did okay, you know. Uh, but anyway, I, I reached a point, I was about, uh, at one point when I was about 42 years old, a, a teacher, a, 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 I had done a lot of scene study classes. By this point, I'd been studying privately with a teacher named Ted Kazanoff for many years, just scene study, and scene study class, which a lot of Americans do. And uh, he was, his name was Ted Kazov. He was a pretty big teacher in New York at the time. And he said to me, uh, would you want to go and get your, uh, you want to get your uh, MFA? Because I can get you into school for free. So uh, anyway, he, he was able to secure me this position at, at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison in, in a Master of Fine Arts program, a three-year terminal degree program. And I just had this crazy idea thinking that, okay, I'm going to have to like be a teacher maybe. I'm going to have to teach this stuff. So... I went for free to this program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, lived there for three years, was a, became a teaching assistant there, and the, they ended up giving me positions in the English department and stuff. Anyway, I, I finished that, so that was done. And then I just had this crazy, I didn't want to go back to New York when I was done. I just had this crazy feeling that I just want to try living in the UK. Now, where I got that idea, I don't know. I, to this day, I can't really tell you why, but I just, moved. I just moved. I came over to London. I remember I got like a bed sit in Earl's Court. I didn't know why. I didn't even have friends that rented it. Came back, uh, came back, uh, got all my shit and brought it back, brought it to London. That was in 2002. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. No connections in the theater. I went out and got a job uh, helping as a cat worker. Uh, out in, the, in Victoria Station, giving people clean needles and taking, you know, junk. it was the only job I could get because I had like a background in social work. But I worked in private healthcare. I'd never worked for like an NHS service. I didn't even know what the NHS was. I mean, I was working with really rough people. <laughs> anyway, I just had this idea and it brought me here. And eventually I, there was used to be this thing called PDR. Is that what it's called? Something like that. It was a casting sheet. Anyway, I, I somehow figured out how to do that. And they used to post me this thing. And I went and I saw this audition at the Landor Theater for this show called Muscles, this musical. And I went and auditioned for it. And they gave me a part. And it, that was in 2002, 2003, something like that. Anyway, from there, I got an agent and I got another agent and another agent. And it just slowly sort of built up for me. But I, I, it was crazy. There was no, I had no, I really didn't have that much money. It was just this crazy sort of voice calling me saying, you should really try to make this work. I just felt like I wanted to make it work. 
and I wanted to change and I just wanted to be doing something different. I don't know if that answers your question. It's not really, it doesn't really add up. I, I find that very interesting though, Mitch, because normally the stereotype is the other way around. Right, right. Who, what American comes to Britain? I mean, who does that? <laughs> now, my, because I have an Irish passport, because my mom's Irish, you know, my mom, you know, I was able to do that. You know, I didn't do that as an American. I did that as an Irish person, you know. Uh, mm. So I have an Irish passport. And that was why, I, and, and that was it. I mean, I knew I could do that. I knew I was able to do that. So that's why I did it. That's why yes. I decided, well, I'm going to go to London. You know, and I've been in New York, you know, on and off for many years. And I lived, you know, also had a place I lived in New York. And I auditioned a lot in New York and did a lot of commercial castings and wasn't getting the auditions for film and telly that I wanted to. And uh, I just thought, well, what do I have to lose? If I go back to New York, I think, oh, I probably want to just kill myself. You know what I mean? New York's a very hard place to make it work as an actor. I just decided to give that a whirl. And I came to London and, you know, I started to get more. I got the most success I really kind of ever had as an actor in London. Hmm. So, of course, you know, I'm always very fond of London. You know, I'm not so sure I'll ever leave, to be honest. You know, it's very hard to come back here even now and feel American, you know, so Mitch, who are your artistic influences? Like I mentioned Richard Jenkins before an actor, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins to me was always the actor I wanted. He was about my age. He was a little older than me, just a couple of years. And I just looked at him and I always just had tremendous respect for him. He was just working on stage then. Now he's like a film star. He wasn't when I knew him, you know, when I began to admire him, but I admire him even more now. I want to be Richard Jenkins. He's always been what I've had in my head. Like, this is a Richard Jenkins part, even though I don't think we're much alike. I think I'm a little kind of, there's something about me that's a little rougher, you know? He's a little more refined. Yeah, so Richard Jenkins, who am I? I'm trying to think of the other people who've always been. I've always liked the old-timey New York uh, Meisner-y actor studio kind of actors. Like, uh, there's a, a tremendous actress that I, uh, you know, that I have, who I think is maybe the best actor in the world is a, I think she's dead now. Her name is Shirley Knight. And I saw her do a lot of plays off Broadway. She was also doing films all the time. To me, an actor like Shirley Knight is just the most incredible actor you've ever seen. Who else? So, so that style of actor was always the kind of actor that I wanted to be. And that I used to watch them in a lot of off-Broadway shows. And, I, uh, the, and, you know, and it was always like the stage to me. Like I never really thought of people in film as to being the kinds of actors that I want to be, even though I love film and I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I don't like film. I certainly do. Uh, but I just, I just used to see a lot of theater. I was somebody who, who really had a hunger for theater. So I would see a lot of great uh, actors in those days. Uh, who else? Um, just anybody from that school uh, of acting that like 1960s actor studio vibe, you know, like a, like John Cassavetti's school of acting, mm. that kind of stuff. It's just what yeah. I always wanted to do. Yes, you know? yes. John Cassavetti's and John Gina Rowland's. Right? Yeah. Gina Rowland's, Ben yes. Bizarra. Yeah. That's the kind uh, of film I wanted to be in. Yeah, yeah. So that was just what I wanted to do. So um, it, it it's hard to say what one actor, but it was like, it's more an aesthetic I'm talking about, I yes. guess. And that aesthetic really is what uh, affected me and made me want to be an actor, Mitch, if you weren't an actor, would you be a psychiatric social worker? I probably would, because I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Neeraj, I always, in some ways, I, I miss doing that job a lot. I loved doing that job. I was very good at it, mostly because it's just, um, it's just a place where, uh, you know, like kindness counts for a lot. Uh, 
you know, you really feel like you make a difference in someone's life when, if you can just sort of hold space for someone when they're terribly ill, like even, and that's a terribly difficult job to do, by the way. I did it for many years while I was actually kind of crazy myself. I used to do it. I kind of look back now and go, how the hell did you do that? But um, I think it actually helped me be less crazy, you know? And, and you know, so, so I would be, I'm very good at that job, believe it or not, I was. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was always a very sad, I never was one of these people that hated my job. I just wanted to do other things. I, to this very day, I still am friends with a lot of the people that I used to work with like many, many years ago. So yeah, I, I maybe would do that again. I mean, I, I, I sometimes dream about doing it again. Sometimes I dream that I'm like on shift, like at the hospital. I, it happens to me quite a lot. So I think I would say that's the job I would do. Plus my mom was a nurse and I think there's always, and as a teenager, I worked in hospitals, you know? When I was in high school, I used to like, you know, be like an orderly and bring ice to patients and things like that. So I just think there's a orientation in me to kind of be helpful to people in that way. And plus I grew up in that era of Peace Corps in America, you know, JFK and Camelot and the commercials for the Peace Corps when I was like five years old. So I always had this thing in my head about helping people. I don't think people grow up like that anymore. What do I know? Mitch, you, you said something very interesting there, though, uh, in, in that answer. You said something like uh, when you were working uh, as a psychiatric social worker, it almost sort of helped your own craziness. Um, so it was, would it be fair to say that, that actually doing that job which you loved, where you were helping people in very difficult circumstances, was actually also something of a therapeutic benefit to yourself? Yes, I see it now. I, I, at the time, I did not. But I think, um, I mean, I've sort of described my childhood in somewhat idyllic terms to you. I think there were a lot of parts of my childhood that were not so idyllic. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I mean, uh, you know, so I think a lot of those less than idyllic parts of my childhood that I brought with me into these, this job, I was able to get a lot of kind of incidental help with them because I, I had to sit in rooms with uh, psychiatrists who were supervising me and my group work. And they sort of, you know, the feedback I got a lot of times was about me and how I was responding. So I had to like really um, change the way that I related to people sometimes, you know, and I, I was directly given that. So yeah, was it therapeutic for me? Absolutely. I learned so much about what it meant to uh, kind of get out of myself and, uh, be able to kind of hold space for other people, which is part of the work that I even do now. And when I, mm. when I teach acting, it's kind of a lot of it, it's about what I call holding space, you know, like listening is holding space for somebody. That's yes. that really is the acting is listening, not really speaking so much, but actually just being in connection with another human being and really just listening to what they're saying. That's the essence of acting. Mitch, tell us about the teaching because you've been teaching as I understand it, uh, since 1996, well, yes. thereabouts. Well, yeah. Well, I taught at the University of Wisconsin. That was the first time I really, sort of, formally taught. You know, I taught like acting and theory, history, and stuff there. As while I was also getting my master of fine arts there, so I was a teaching assistant for the you know the university. Uh, yeah. And so, like, and when I came over to Britain, you know, 
I never really had this idea that I want to be a teacher. I actually kind of always have kind of avoided it. I still sort of do to this day. I don't like to think of myself as a teacher. Yeah, so when I got here, people used to like kind of, somebody that I know, I, I met this guy, he runs a theater company in Brighton. He asked me to do a class. And I went, like, reluctantly agreed. And I went, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with them. But I actually just did scenes with them. You know, because I, I did scene study class for so many years myself. That's really how I learned to be an actor. It was just through scene study class, not drama school per se. As you know, I was kicked out of drama school. It was, uh, you know, it was through scene study. And so I, I feel, I, I know how to do that with people. And so I take scenes, give them scenes, and would work on scenes. And uh, yeah, and that was a really positive experience for me. And then uh, it so happens that a very good friend of mine who was an actor with me in New York and Boston years ago, fast forward, became a very big acting teacher in Los Angeles. His name is Anthony Mindel. Runs a big uh, acting training concern in Los Angeles. He started to like globalize. And so he got this idea that I should teach in London for him. He asked me to. I didn't want to do it. I really didn't. I've never wanted to teach. I just always like, I'm always like resisting it. Lo and behold, I've been doing it for the last seven years. It's at the Anthony Mindel Actors Workshop, which is a, it's called AMAW for sure, because he has sort of an unwieldy German name that nobody can pronounce. Yeah, so that, that workshop's been going on in London for seven years. Pretty much, I've been, you know, I've been sort of heading up that effort here in London for a long time. So yeah, so I've been doing that for quite a while. It takes up a lot of my uh, time. And, uh, but, you know, I, I have to say, I guess I like it, because why else would I do it, right? Mm. <laughs> I, I seem to not want to be owning, liking it. I, I apologize for that. But I, I do, I do. There's a part of me that's an actor that just wants to be an actor and doesn't want to be a teacher, you know? So that's the part of me that resists, I think. And finally, Mitch, what, what does the future hold for Mitch Mullen? Well, who the fuck knows, Neeraj, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, as you know, we're all in this crazy space right now, right? Where we can't even figure out how to shave and cut our hair, you know? Yeah. Um, who knows? I mean, I, I uh, you know, I'm... I, let me just put it this way. I, I changed uh, agents about a year ago. Relatively new relationship with a new agent, right, in London. Yeah, and then all of a sudden this stuff happens, you know, this, this, this pandemic. You know, we're all dealing with it, as you know. And so kind of the work opportunity shut down. So uh, I was sort of like cut off at the knees. I don't really have any work coming up. I am teaching online. I'm doing some stuff online. You know, so I've had to learn how to do that. Trying to like, how do you teach acting through Zoom? I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. I'm kind of figuring it out, believe it or not. It's sort of, uh, it's been very interesting. So, uh, and people want to do it. People want to do it. That's the thing that I wasn't really aware of. They, they're dying to do it. So where do we go, Nears? I don't know. I think we're entering like a brand new world. I'm not sure that quote unquote acting opportunities will exist as we know it anymore. I'm not so sure. I just don't know, you know? Uh, and we're talking about like live theater. Who the hell knows what could, how the hell are any of us going to be able to do live theater anymore? To be honest, there's a part of me that only wants to do live theater from now on. I mean, mm. if I were just going to talk about like my belly, I would say what goes on like in my belly and my gut. I'm kind of like, let's just all go out and do theater now. Like I, even though I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I just think it's but yeah, I kind of want to do more theater than I ever have, to be honest, uh, you know, because for the last 20 years I've been in Britain, I, I haven't done theater the way I used to do it. You know, I mean, I haven't, those kinds of jobs really weren't available to me here in the UK. So it was mostly more on camera stuff that became available to me. 
Mitch Mullen. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Nears, what a pleasure. That was Mitchell Mullen. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.